From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, beauty is in the eye of the cosmetic wearer. Unfortunately, the FDA rules regarding cosmetics were passed in 1938, and despite several attempts by Congress to pass updates, there's not been a successful update of the law since then. First this. 2017 marks the launch of a new meeting, the iWorld Surgical Summit in Deer Valley, Utah. The beauty of Deer Valley is astounding. Gorgeous mountains, crisp air, wonderful food, and Deer Valley is justifiably famous for its fabulous skiing. And all of this is just the backdrop to the most convivial and practical meeting of the year. The iWorld Surgical Summit focuses on advances and techniques that you can apply to your practice immediately. Look for links to next year's Surgical Summit at surgicalsummit.iworld.org. And did I mention the skiing? Call me naive, but I thought that cosmetics merely changed the wearer's appearance, and that aside from an occasional allergic dermatitis, the torturing of test animals, and absorbing an unreasonable portion of the GDP, makeup could really cause no harm. Nor did I realize that after a conversation with Laura Perryman, today's guest, I would have any difficulty recognizing the border between cosmetics and pharmaceuticals. I found this interview equal parts fascinating and frightening. My conversation with Dr. Perryman was detailed and lengthy, and I'm going to divide it into two podcasts. We'll hear part one today and the conclusion in the next podcast. We're going to be talking about the effect of cosmetics on the ocular surface. So, Laura, is, is our discussion going to be about the particulate matter in the, in the tear film or plugging of, of meibomian gland orifices? Well, I, it's, that's a great question, and that's a place to start. But really what we've discovered is that it's much more complicated than just about particulate matter and plugging of the meibomian gland orifices. It turns out the chemicals involved in everyday cosmetics and everyday exposures have significant deleterious effects to the ocular surface. And the shorthand way I explain that to patients is what's good for your skin is probably not good for your eyes. So what, what what we're talking about now are are not just the the effects of you know the 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 physical particles, but but you're talking about some of the the biochemical effects of these these products. Yes. Yeah, so some in, we have a photo case series where we've seen particles actually lodge into the subconjunctival area and create you know these permanent refractile elements, almost like the sparkle part of your eyeshadow and create a subconjunctival fibrosis. And then in addition to that, we're uncovering a deep connection between the chemicals and the uh, actual pharmaceuticals that are in some of the over-the-counter cosmetics that are also contributing to ocular surface disease. Huh. So look, if, if we're talking about the pharmaceutical properties of, of some of these, these products that you know I don't think of as pharmaceutical products, what role does the FDA have in regulating them? Oh, that's a great question. Unfortunately, the FDA rules regarding cosmetics were passed in 1938, and despite several attempts by Congress to pass updates regarding laws around cosmetics, there's not been a successful update of the law since then. So the, it's in desperate need of update. It doesn't do an adequate job of protecting consumers from cosmetics and over-the-counter ingredients, in my opinion. But um, the, the laws 
the way it's written and the lack of resources to enforce violations on behalf of cosmetic companies is two of the reasons why this is a continuing problem. So if, if we're talking about products that have these pharmacologic properties, then I mean, it, it, it sort of begs the question, what is a cosmetic? What, what, what's the definition uh, of, a, of a cosmetic? Well, a cosmetic, according to the FDA, is something that you apply, pour, sprinkle, spray onto your body to promote your attractiveness or enhance your appearance. A drug is something intended to cure, treat, or alter the structure or function of the body. There's a fine line in there, particularly when we're talking about synthetic prostaglandins that is a common ingredient in some of these lash growth serums. Huh. So look, what, what are some of you, you mentioned the synthetic prostaglandins, what are some of the, the bioactive compounds in these products? And you, I, I know that this is a very big and complex palette. Can I get you to divide these up so that we can discuss uh, this topic in, in an organized fashion? Uh, yes, um, thank you for that. So I think of it as uh, groups of chemicals that are, we'll, we'll, we'll take one specific example, eyelash growth serums. There's several aspects to the eyelash growth story, but we'll focus on the chemicals for now. The eyelash growth chemical is either a synthetic prostaglandin or what we call peptides that are altered in a way to promote keratinization and growth of the lash in a non-prostaglandin way. So either way, you're having a drug-like effect on the lashes, which to me is very much a gray area in the FDA rules and how they're written. You and I both know that prostaglandins have potential deleterious effects, irritation, inflammation, you know, orbital fat atrophy, irritation of the skin, including uh, a significant association with meibomian gland dysfunction. And yet isopropylcloprostenate is the name of the synthetic prostaglandin that you will find in at least one-third of over-the-counter lash growth products. Wait, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm being sort of daft here, but there's, there's a, a drug called Latisse that is a prostaglandin for lash growth. And now you're, you're telling me that there are over-the-counter prostaglandins for, for lash growth? Why, why is, you know, why, why is, is one fish and one fowl? <laughs> That's a great question. And again, it points to that gray area that we talked about earlier. The, in my mind, Latisse is a legitimate product because it has gone through FDA safety and efficacy vetting. Fantastic. In addition, there's not a lot of extra chemicals in it. When you look at the ingredients list in these over-the-counter lash growth products, there are a variety of other ingredients that are additionally deleterious to the ocular surface. When you're talking about Latisse, it's just the drug and the solution and a little bit of preservative. When you're talking about over-the-counter lash growth products, you're talking about all of those things plus carriers, alcohols, BAK in high concentrations, um, EDTA, which has all kinds of interesting effects on breaking down the epithelial cell-type junctions of the cornea, etc. So there, it's not just the isopropylcloprostenate, but it's all the other bycatch, the other stuff in those ingredients that are also harmful to the ocular surface. Not to mention the fact that the eyelash growth, the artificial lengthening of the eyelashes, alters the ideal ratio between the lid length and the lash length. And when you do that, you actually it negatively impact the aerodynamics of eyelashes. Oh, that's hilarious. They're, so, yeah, like, like, I mean, I shouldn't say it's not funny, but I mean, it's a, so, <laughs> it, so it acts like a, 
like a like a little channel for for wind to to blow through. Yes, and they've done aerodynamic modeling studies demonstrating that when you adjust that ideal lid length to lash length ratio, this was done in 22 mammalian species, that you get a wind tunnel effect towards the eye rather than the ideal length, which gives a wind deflecting effect away from the eye. So we're essentially exacerbating your own dry eye when you have artificially lengthened lashes. Now you 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 make the 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 I mean this is obviously it's it's already complex here. So we we've we've discussed the synthetic prostaglandins and you've alluded to some of the other um chemicals in in these products. But prostaglandins aren't the the only um cosmetic product that has um, a- an an effect on the eye not by accident but by intention so you you make the the point that this is true uh, of some other skincare products that produce an unwelcome effect on the, on the eyelid not by <laughs> virtue of inadvertent <laughs> properties but because they're doing exactly what they're what they're meant to what I'm talking about now are products that are made to remove oils from the skin and you make the point that they also have a deleterious effect on the meibomian glands can I get you to sort of flesh this topic out oh <clears throat> great question <clears throat> well there, there's twofold components to that when I think about the deleterious effects on the meibomian glands with beauty practices there's the chemical aspect of the synthetic prostaglandin and the artificial lash lengthening, the toxicity of the chemical itself, and the effect on the meibomian glands. You're talking about cleansers, surfactants, detergents, facial washes, etc. What you're effectively doing is stripping away that delicate, critical oil reservoir on your lid margin that um, is responsible for going on to precorneal tear film and preventing evaporation. So in my mind, you are exacerbating or worsening the evaporative burden of your dry eye patient every time they use an over-the-counter cleanser, face wash, even just soap and water cleansing too close to the eyelids, not to mention liquid makeup removers with all of its toxicities. This was done, there's an interesting study done, published in January 2014 by James Jester, and they developed this incredible in vivo mouse model of desiccating stress. And what they found was that there is an upregulation of the meibomian glands in response to desiccating stress in vivo. And you get this altered protein to lipid ratio that is seen as early as five days. And so the, these meibocytes are stimulated to turn over and produce more, but there's not enough time for that protein to lipid ratio to mature. And so in effect, by goosing the system, either by desiccating stress, overstripping the meibomian glands, you can come up with all kinds of interesting human clinical correlates, three days in Las Vegas, you, know, you name it. You're getting this upregulation stress on the meibocytes stem cells and a poor quality meibom because of the insufficient time to mature it to that ideal protein to lipid ratio. Now, some facial products list BAK as a preservative, and, and therefore the BAK concentration must be greater than, than 1% for the manufacturer to be compelled to even list it. What is the comparable percentage of BAK in a preserved eyedrop, just so that I have some frame of, of reference? Sure. Well, the FDA labeling laws say that if an ingredient is 1% or higher, it must be listed. Below 1%, it may be listed. So it's completely optional. So if you have a patient who's allergic to something like nickel oxide, which is a common allergen, they may not know that it's in their cosmetic product, which is a problem. The 
when you look at these ingredient lists, and I'm thinking specifically of a liquid eye makeup remover, that's the first thing I remove from my dry patient's beauty toolkit. You will find BAK not listed at the very bottom, implying 1%, but you'll find it much higher in the list, implying even higher than 1%. And to put that in perspective, topical ophthalmic drops range anywhere from 0.001% BAK to 0.02% BAK, which is a teeny tiny fraction of what a woman who's using a liquid eye makeup remover is exposing her eyes to every single day. Well, that's really that's sobering, that's scary. Wow. And there's all kinds of demonstrated toxicities to the epithelium and the goblet cells. Now, while we're on the topic of ingredient lists, you speak about formaldehyde as an irritant that's associated with skincare products. Laura, I'm sure that I have never seen that on the, <laughs> on the list of, of ingredients in, in any product. Right. So, well, I'm sure you remember from Gross Anatomy how irritated your eyes were from the yes. formalin off-gassing, right? Remember that? It's very Absolutely. irritating at concentrations as little as 0.05 parts per million. In the case of cosmetics, they are listed in these Franken-chemical names, and they're called formaldehyde-donating preservatives. And they go by crazy names like DMDM hydantoin, good luck remembering that, sulfonylurea, quaternium-15, so they're hidden, they're disguised in their organic chemistry name. I'm getting my sweet revenge on my organic chemistry undergrad class, I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, so you're not going to, it's hidden, and you have to know your labels and what to look for with the same degree of compulsion as you do your food labels. We'll end today's conversation here and pick up where we left off next time. Laura Perryman comes to us from Seattle, Washington. Dr. Perryman has published a number of articles on the subject of today's podcast. One excellent one is, When Beauty Doesn't Blink, We Look at Exacerbators of Ocular Surface Disease That Lurk on Product Labels in Cosmetic Bags, published in the August 1, 2016 issue of Ophthalmology Management. Ask questions of Dr. Perryman or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.